Hello and welcome to this week's episode. I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation with Frank Rose. Frank is the author of The Sea We Swim In and The Art of Immersion, a landmark book on tech and narrative. He is a former contributing editor at Wired and contributing writer at Fortune. He now teaches global business executives as faculty director of Columbia University's Strategic Storytelling Seminar. He also heads the Digital Dozen Awards program at Columbia's pioneering digital storytelling lab. Today, we're talking about his brand new book, The Sea We Swim In. And in our conversation, we're going everywhere, talking about brands, storytelling, and the power of having a strong story to attract your ideal customer and create raving fans. I can't wait for you to listen in. Okay, so I'm here with Frank Rose. Hello, Frank. I'm so happy to have you uh, in this conversation today. Thank you for joining me. Hello, Victoria. Uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm so excited to dig into uh, the book. I have tons of questions. So the sea we swim in. Um, let's go ahead and get started. Share a little bit about your background and and what got you so interested in stories um, you know, why you became so interested in stories in the first place. Sure. Well, the book is really about, you know, what I call narrative thinking, which I think is increasingly important because we're in an age where we no longer are expected to sit back and consume movies and TV shows and advertisements and things like that. We're all storytellers ourselves. And of course, in fact, we always were, but that was not really the dominant idea. That, you know, we were expected, as I say, just to sit back. And that's no longer the case. So we, I feel like we all have to understand what stories are about and how they work and how we can make them work for us. Mm. For me, uh, this really began, well, in, in two stages, perhaps. First off, uh, most of my career, I was a journalist. Uh, I was a, a reporter, a magazine writer. I wrote for Wired magazine before that for Fortune and for Esquire and uh, starting out with the Village Voice in, in Manhattan. And so I sort of had a natural you know, predilection, I suppose you could say, for stories. But then something happened which basically changed my life and sent me off in a new direction, uh, which is where I am now. I teach a, a, an executive education program called Strate Strategic Storytelling at Columbia. And uh, what happened was at Wired, I was a reporter sort of at the intersection of media and technology. And uh, that literally meant anywhere from Hollywood to cell phones. I wrote about movies. I wrote about uh, you know, iMode, the Japanese, uh, you know, sort of very, uh, at the time, avant-garde, this is 20 years ago, uh, um, online internet for mobile phones. And um, at a certain point, I realized that the way people were telling stories was changing. And it seemed to be changing in response to technology. It seemed to be changing in response to technology. And uh, and what I started to realize was, as I looked into this more and more, that the way that the way people tell stories always changes in response to technology, and that 
generally it takes people at least 20 or 30 or 40 years to figure out what the new technology is all about, how it works, and how to tell stories in a way that's native to that technology. The best example of this, I think, uh, may be the motion picture camera. Before the motion picture camera was invented, it was impossible to even conceive of things that we now take for granted, like cuts and pans and fades and all this stuff that's now part of the grammar of cinema. All this stuff that's now part of the grammar of cinema. So when the motion picture camera came along, the very first movies, most of them were uh, 10 minutes long, which was the length of a real film. Well, I, I want to dub double click on this idea of how stories change, mm -hmm. technology changes. Like right. what does it practically mean the, the, how stories are executed from a book, say, to the digital world? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so what I realized as I looked into this was that every time we have a new communications technology, stories change, the way we tell stories change. And, um, and basically what happens is it takes us 20, 30, 40 years to figure out um, what's going on with this new technology and to develop a form of storytelling that's native to it. A perfect example I think is with movies. The motion picture camera was invented around 1890. It was uh, in well into the 19-teens before we regularly had feature-length films with movie stars as opposed to anonymous actors um, that used everything that we now take for granted as part of the grammar of cinema, like cuts, pans, fades, and so forth. Because before we had a motion picture camera, it was impossible even to conceive of such a thing. So that's what's happening now, I think, in response to the um, in response to the internet and digital technology in general. So would you say that we still have quite a long way to go in developing our storytelling ability in on digital, on social, for example, knowing that social is only like, what, about 50 <laughs> or less, really 10 years old being used for brands? Yeah. Um, no, very good question. I do think we have a long way to go. Uh, with digital technology in general, with social media in particular. Social media started out, uh, you know, roughly 15 years ago. And at first it seemed like, uh, you know, it seemed like a great boon. There was a, 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 a panel that I, um, a discussion that I saw several years ago, you know, back in the, in the late aughts, I suppose, in which one of the panelists had this great line. He said, the problem with, with mass media is it's not social. Mm. And uh, what's happened since then, I think to the surprise of a lot of people, including myself, is that mass media has become much more social and social media has become completely anti-social. Mm. And uh, that is sort of where we find ourselves right now. And I, frankly, I don't have the answer for this and I don't think anybody does, but we're, we definitely have to sort of uh, stumble through it and figure out, you know, how to have a form of social media that is not toxic, which I have to say, I think Facebook is now and others to a lesser extent, but Facebook in particular.
Hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, let's shift a little bit. Talk about sort of why, why the story, stories in general are so important. And I want you to touch on something that, that you have in the first section of the book about kind of homogenizing thought. So let's start there a little bit from that frame of why stories are so important for communication. Sure. So the thing about stories is they really define our understanding of the world. We use them constantly without even thinking about it. And my thinking on this was very much uh, influenced by Jerome Bruner, who was, of course, one of the leading psychologists of the 20th century, a, uh, a leader in the revolt against behaviorism uh, in the 1950s, and a key figure in what became known as the cognitive revolution, the evolution of cognitive science, um, including cognitive psychology and neuroscience. And Bruner's, Bruner's point uh, which he started developing in the 1980s. Bruner's point was that, uh, that stories are a, uh, a, a mode of thought, a separate mode of thought. They're um, different from what scientists had always uh, considered worth studying, which is to say reason and logic. And uh, they, they constitute a different mode of thought from reason and logic and one that is just as important, uh, if not more so. Frankly, I think that reason and logic, unfortunately, are sort of an aspirational goal for us. Uh, you know, I think that stories are much more uh, how we think naturally. And the reason for that is that stories appeal to the emotions. Uh, stories are emotional by nature. And, uh, and so our our sense of, of how things work, of how, uh, of, of what reality even is, is really kind of rooted in the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we tell each other and the stories that we read and watch and, uh, and so forth. Um, everything comes together uh, through uh, a series of stories that we, you know, sort of interpret in our heads and uh, this becomes our sense of reality. That was really Bruner's point, and I think it's a really key one. Why do you think, and, and I loved how you talked about this in the book as well, sort of the power of emotion, the power of story over reason, and you go into great detail sort of giving examples throughout history and mm -hmm. sort of bringing it forward to sort of disinformation that we're experiencing recently, but why do you think people tend to believe their stories or act uh, in context to stories that they believe rather than scientific evidence or, or other kind of reason. Like, why do we do that? Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, it's, it's really a critical question. And I think a big, part of the, a big part of the reason why stories are so powerful is that stories give us something, uh, a, a, a memory hook, basically. Stories give us something to, you know, sort of lodge in the brain and, and um, make it easy to recall. And uh, that's really where emotion comes in as well. And I think, a, you know, a, a perfect example is the current, uh, you know, uh, you can't even call it a debate. Uh, the current sense of total confusion over uh, vaccines, uh, you know, is in particular, of course, the coronavirus vaccine. There's no shortage of information that the 
the vaccines certainly appear to be safe, certainly much safer than not being vaccinated, uh, and that they're very effective. Um, but it's the stories that circulate, in particular, that circulate online and in social media that uh, that people seize on, uh, you know. So if you're in any way predisposed to not want the vaccine, uh, there's no end of stories that you can cite, most of them totally bogus, uh, that will uh, reinforce your point of view. And, you know, I see this in all kinds of people. It's, um, you know, there, there's, I mean, I recently came across a Twitter feed by a neuroscientist I'm familiar with who was talking about, you know, freedom to, uh, you know, not get the vaccine, uh, which to me is just ludicrous. Yeah, no, and, and the interesting examples from the book of uh, particular on this topic is just the disinformation and dangerous information that's been spread across the internet on, you know, certain remedies that actually caused great harm to people, right? And it's, it's funny how you know, that's just one example, but I, I believe there's a lot of ways in which we, uh, our actions are based less on logic, more on the emotion. And a very good example is probably Starbucks, right? It's sort of like you want a cup of coffee. I don't go to Starbucks for the coffee. I go for the, the feeling that I get, right? When I'm, I'm in there and the way I'm treated. And, and, I, and I love, that actually points to um, the section you chat about the audience, the customers as the audience. So let's get to that um, in, a, in a minute. But I kind of want to go into, uh, well, actually, no, this segues perfectly. A little bit about how experiences, right? We can actually talk on that. How customers are your audience, right, for your brand. And how does experience in general correlate or strengthen the stories that we tell um, in our lives or for the brands that we create? Sure. Uh, you know, this is a really key point. And, uh, and, and the, the work on this was, uh, was, was really first done by a couple of guys, Joe Pine and James Gilmore, who in, I think it was 1998, published this book called The Experience Economy. And their point, uh, which I reiterate in The Sea We Swim In, their point was that you know, we've moved obviously from a manufacturing economy to a service economy, and the next stage is moving from a uh, service economy to an experience economy in which, you know, basically um, all the world's a stage. We're all on stage all the time. Uh, we, you know, whether we're a barista at, um, at Starbucks, uh, whether we're part of the audience at Starbucks, uh, you know, whether we're at a bank, um, whether we're, uh, you know, in any kind of public setting, we are going through an experience. And that, of course, was always the case, but it wasn't where the emphasis was. It wasn't something that we really thought about. And now it is something that we really um, have to think about. And stories fit in there, of course, at a certain level, because, uh, you know, stage, theater, it's all about stories, right? Uh, and, and when you, I mean, to take the Starbucks example, uh, you know, when you have a barista who is making a very specific uh, kind of coffee for you, a, a kind of drink, 
you know, and and there's a, a certain technique and you watch this and, and so forth. And frankly, this has been taken much farther by other brands like Phil's in San Francisco um, and so forth. But, uh, uh, you know, but Starbucks was certainly a, a pioneer in this regard. And that's why they charge so much for their coffee. Um, the other thing about Starbucks, of course, is that, which I love, is that, you know, it's an informal gathering place for people who don't even know each other. But we like being in one another's company. Uh, you know, we can make coffee at home. We can work on our laptop and, you know, get Wi-Fi at home. But somehow we find it better to congregate in a place like Starbucks and, and, and you know, be alone together. Well, let's talk a little bit about the intimacy that sort of audience plays when we're telling our story, uh, our stories. And I love the excerpt that you included about audience versus eyeballs. So why did you feel like this was important to include in the book? You know, it was funny. Uh, that's, I'm sure you noticed that uh, that takes the form of a little box that's in the book. And, yeah. and it was something that I, I did feel was important to say. It didn't exactly fit in with anything else I was saying, but but, um, uh, you know, the, so there was, I didn't feel like there was a place to kind of work it in to the, to the overall narrative of the book. But, uh, but I do think it's critical. It's always bothered me. And, you know, even when I, even, uh, you know, at times in the past when I used to do it myself. And I think it's basically it's dehumanizing, you know, we, we, and it gets to, I think, a larger issue, which is, how we uh, how we conceive of other people, and how we conceive, in particular, of the people that we you know think of as our audience, and uh, you know it's somehow it's easier to think of them if we just sort of dehumanize them and think of them as units, uh, you know, and and not as like actual individuals that we have to appeal to uh, in some emotional way, and. So that's, that was sort of the impetus, I guess you could say, for, for that little comment. But I did feel that it was, you know, symptomatic of, of a larger thing that we do, which is to try to distance ourselves from other people, which is to try to, uh, you know, make ourselves a little less vulnerable, perhaps. Uh, and, and I... The more I thought about it, the more I realized that eyeballs are not really where it's at, right? You know, all the thinking, all the seeing, literally, takes place in the brain, you know, at some considerable remove from the eyeballs. And, uh, and so the sense of eyeballs is just, you know, it's a very surface thing, you know, because the eyeball is just like, it's an organ at the surface of the body that responds to light. Everything else takes place in the brain. Uh, and so if you're only thinking about eyeballs, you're only thinking about what's really on the surface. Mm. And, and that connects to this idea of the data, really. It's sort of the eyeballs to me were synonymous with this idea of like, here's the data. But in the example that you showcase on the Warby Parker and the bus, the cross country bus, um, there's a beautiful paragraph where you kind of highlight um, you know, how the data, how having the experiential part of the brand brings the data to life, right? You're kind of matching 
the hardware with the software kind of. And, and really, because data can only tell you so much, tell you action, right? Tell you the views. But when, you, when your brand is, has an exper a, a experiential part to it, where you can actually be physically talking to your actual real audience, I think it's really important for brands in general not to lose that, the importance of that, right? There's so, so many different types of mechanisms by which we can track people's behaviors and gather that data. But I think the, the actual human touch is something that is a big differentiator between the breakout brands that you highlight in the book, right? Um, so let's talk about uh, kind of a segue into why, why storytelling is so important for brands. Right. I think storytelling is important for brands because that's who you, that's, I think storytelling is important for brands because that's how you establish who you are. That's how you establish your identity. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, uh, stories are just something that people respond to naturally. There's a sense of curiosity that we have. Uh, you know, if there's a brand that we're in some way attracted to or curious about, we want to know more about it. And again, it, it, I mean, it gets back to this idea of eyeballs, right? Uh, you know, we want to know about the people who are behind the brand. We want to know who they are, what their goals and ambitions are, why they're doing this. Uh, you know, uh, Simon Sinek, uh, you know, wrote a best-selling book called Start With Why. Uh, you know, if you uh, can explain to people why you're doing something, why you want their attention, why you want their uh, you know, why you want to sell them uh, your product, um, it really gives us something to connect with. And it's always better to connect with something real, something that feels authentic, something that, uh, uh, you know, that, that we can make a direct human connection with um, than it is to, you know, just sort of like buy a product. Mm. That's, you know, that was... Yeah, that worked a while ago, but uh, it doesn't work so much anymore. It's number, it's one of a number of things that don't work so well anymore. And I think storytelling and stories are really at the heart of all of these things. Mm. And it sort of goes into this idea of, you know, how to sell, right? If we look at persuading mm -hmm. our prospects or our potential clients, right, using the power of persuasion or highlighting the unique selling points of a product. As we discussed earlier about like rationale, right? Reasoning versus emotion that customers are gonna buy uh, probably more easily if they connect to a story rather than being persuaded by unique selling points. Um, do we have, or ha have you seen the evidence of, of how that translates into um, the success of a brand or a company saying, you know, you can't just muscle your way anymore into getting sales. It's more that if you don't have that emotional connection, um, that you're not going to be as successful. Can we say that? Yes, I think that's, uh, I think that's definitely the case. Uh, you know, the whole idea of the unique selling proposition, of course, uh, started in the uh, late 1950s um, with Rosser Reeves, the uh, head of Ted Bates advertising agency at the time, uh, who wrote a book called Reality and Advertising, in which he argued that if you don't have a unique selling proposition, you might as well forget about it. Unique selling proposition meaning some 
something about your product that makes it um, unique that will make people want to buy it. Um, you know, this was discarded back in the 60s with the advent of the creative revolution, uh, so-called, in advertising. And it's even, it's even less relevant today, but it's something that people, you know, hang on to constantly. The problem with trying to persuade people by, uh, to buy, the problem with trying to persuade people to buy your product by, uh, by, by touting its benefits is, you know, it just doesn't work. Uh, you know, when you m try to make an argument, people's natural response is to say, you know, oh yeah, is that, is that really true? Whereas when you tell a story, uh, people are inclined just naturally to, uh, to accept the basic propositions at least of the story uh, and to, uh, you know, ultimately perhaps um, uh, accept the message of the story. So, there's, there's something there that I think is really critical. Again, it has to do with emotions. It has to do with the emotional content and quality of storytelling. Uh, and we, I mean, a very good example is there was a ad for Volkswagen that was done in, I think around 2011 or so in the Super Bowl. And there's a company in, uh, based in London called Real Eyes, um, Real Eyes, that uh, looks at this sort of thing. Um, and what they found was that, well, they compared it to a, um, another ad that ran at the uh, same time for uh, a, a Ford Compact that focused on fuel economy. The fuel economy ad it was pretty dreary, I have to admit, um, but it got almost no traction on social media. You know, it got almost no clicks on, on YouTube, uh, whereas the Volkswagen ad, it was an ad for the Passat, uh, got a tremendous response and a tremendous number of shares. And uh, the Volkswagen ad, you know, you didn't even know it was about Volkswagen until the last uh, you know, maybe five or six seconds. Uh, the whole thing was about a little kid, little boy, maybe seven years old or so, who's dressed up in a Darth Vader costume. You can't even see his face. And he goes around the house trying to animate everything using the force. Uh, you know, not even the dog will wake up. Uh, and so he's completely frustrated. And finally, his dad drives up in the driveway with his new uh, VW Passat and uh, the kid stands in front of it uh, while the dad goes into the, uh, into the house and he, you know, does his thing, you know, trying to animate it with, with the force. And to his shock, the VW turns on, right? It, it, it actually comes on. Cut to... Uh, inside the house in the kitchen, the dad is standing at the kitchen window looking at the driveway and clicking the remote. Uh, so, so, you know, that's the kind of emotional hook that a story can, can get. Uh, and frankly, uh, you know, another reason that stories are so important now in brand marketing is that we can get all the information we want about any product in the world online. 
we don't need to be told, uh, you know, by a suspect source, um, you know, what the advantages of it are. We can find out for ourselves and we can get, you know, a million product reviews from users um, and consumers and so forth. And that's going to be much more convincing to us than anybody telling you how great their product is. Well, Frank, that was such an aha moment for me. That was, you're absolutely right, right? It's that everyone does that extensive research and there's bloggers that will do millions. I mean, you can find millions of reviews on anything. So it's our job as marketers or as founders and to make our company brand have that emotional connection and let the sort of results speak for itself almost, right? The reviewers and the raving fans kind of speak for themselves. So um, let's talk a little bit about uh, this story a little bit deeply. So a little bit deeper. So a lot of times the stories become the unique selling point at, 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 at some uh, junction, right? And so a lot of entrepreneurs I, I see in recent years, right? They use their own personal story, like their own personal personality as the vehicle to make connection for the, for the brand. The problem is, is that, you know, if you, as your business grows, you know, the, the process of extracting yourself from, from the brand story, the brand personality becomes kind of like a pickle, right? So I wonder if it, what your advice would be. Do you, do you believe that it's better to sort of start with building the brand sort of separate from the personality of the founder from the beginning? Or do you think that there is an elegant way to sort of transition it? I think it can be transitioned. And I think even for a, even for a brand that becomes big, there's still a lot to be said for making a connection to the founders. Um, you know, it's, that's just a natural story uh, in itself. And it gives people, you know, not just something to connect with, but somebody to connect with. And we, you know, we all love to connect with other people. That's what it's all about. That's what life is about. And, and so, you know, I don't, I don't really feel any conflict there uh, at all. Um, you know, it obviously somebody who is the head of a, you know, multi-billion dollar corporation operates at a different scale, entirely different scale from somebody who, uh, you know, has a startup. But look at Steve Jobs. You know, this, this is somebody who was, um, key to the identity of Apple from the very start. Um, when they got rid of him in the 1980s, the uh, company slowly and then very quickly uh, started um, going to hell in a handbasket. And then uh, he came back in and, you know, turned it with the help, of course, of a lot of people there, but, you know, basically using his ideas and his personality uh, into the most valuable publicly traded company in the world today, which is what it is. And uh, that was, uh, you know, his personality and the force of his, you know, will became a really key point, I think, in, in creating that. You know, uh, Apple had, Apple itself had a personality there were other things going on there, like the fact that they didn't, you know, tout all their advantages when they came out with the iPod. You know, they didn't tell you 
you know, how, how much memory it had or anything like that. They just showed pictures of you having fun with it. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. But, uh, you know, Steve Jobs and his, you know, the introductions that he did on stage, uh, you know, all of that became just a, a really key part of Apple's identity. And I think a key part of its success. And so, so for founders that are building now that feel like they don't want to be sort of like the star, right? They don't like that kind of spotlight. How would, how do you believe they can practically craft stories that are going to have that emotional connection that's not about their personal lives? So I'm thinking about some of the Warby Parker examples. Like, is it necessary to be, you know, having a detailed background story for every single part of your logo and your color? Does that sort of help um, bridge that gap uh, between making the emotional connection for the brand as a standalone rather than just a, a figurehead? Right. Uh, that's a very good question. And, and I, think, I think it can. I think uh, Warby Parker is actually a great example. Uh, you know, the founders of Warby Parker have been written up countless times in magazines like Fast Company and Inc., but, uh, but they're not all that well known to the general public, and, and that has to be by design. So, uh, you know, they, they've managed to sort of um, get across the quirkiness and, and the advantages of the brand. That all becomes part of the brand story. Uh, we, you know, we, we know sort of intuitively, if, if nothing else, that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a sort of a renegade brand. It, uh, you know, came, came about by, uh, um, it's sort of a renegade brand that came about because somebody uh, did not have uh, the wherewithal to buy Somebody did not have the wherewithal to replace his $700 pair of Prada sunglasses with, uh, with that broke or that he lost with something new. Uh, but we don't really need to know who that person was or, you know, why uh, any of this happened. You know, what we, what we need to know is that it's a brand that, uh, that represents something that stands for something that and that has uh, that makes a direct connection with its con with its that makes a direct connection with its customers. I think that's what's most important here. Do you have some advice on? So we talked about experience, right? And a lot of the the visuals um, or the physicality of a brand can ex can really produce that emotion, that experiential emotion for for clients, for customers. But can you talk a little bit about the importance of the voice of the brand? Yeah, I think that's really key. Uh, you know, voice is something that as a writer, you always have to come to grips with. And what it really means is understanding who you are and understanding how you naturally express yourself and, uh, you know, how that works. and and it becomes an issue of authenticity and of not trying to be someone you're not. And this works for individuals. It you know, works most obviously for individual writers. It's something I had to come to terms with uh, very early in my career as a journalist, but uh, it's not just writers, it's everybody. 
and uh, and certainly it applies to brands. So just as a individual has a certain type of voice that they naturally communicate with, and by voice I mean the, you know, uh, is it humorous? Are they funny? Are they serious? Are they always trying to make a point? Um, uh, you know, what is their personality and how does it come through? This applies to a brand just as much as it applies to an individual person. Mm. Um, and any kind of ideas on, and maybe you can leverage from your own experience as a writer, but how, especially as startups start bringing on other people to execute the voice, any tips or advice on how to maintain brand consistency, right? Because it's, it's so important and it's something I think often very difficult from the operational standpoint to sort of do, right? Right, right. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, especially as a company gets bigger, uh, you know, when, when you're a startup, it's, uh, you know, if you, if you know who you are, then it's relatively easy to get that across and certainly to get across consistently. Um, as you hire more and more people, obviously the easy thing to say is, uh, you know, hire people who are like you, but that's, uh, you know, that's very hard to do. And, uh, you know, it's very hard to, to, to know um, who it is you're hiring until you've, until you've actually hired them. Uh, so failing that, I think, you know, the best thing to do is to, uh, you know, somehow kind of codify, but not too, not too rigidly, try to codify, you know, who you are and what your voice is. And by you, I mean your brand. Um, and, and, you know, just put it down so that people, uh, the people who work for you, people who work with you, the people who speak for you, uh, know what they're supposed to be doing, and uh, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't just sort of, you know, go off in in some random direction that uh, uh, you know, which is very much not what you want to do. Yeah. Um, cool. So let's talk a little bit about sort of the evolution of the brand, how to amplify the brand. So talking a little bit about the the platform and the emer and the immersion aspect of brands. So. Obviously, there's examples of this. We talked about Starbucks a little bit, Disney you touch on. Um, but how are stories sort of manufactured across platforms to create these kind of different experiences around one narrative? Um, I would love to tie that into sort of, that's like a big scale, right? Multinationals, how they do it. They've got, you know, parks or various TV shows and things like that. But I see a, a big connection on how the average person can kind of do that either for themselves individually across various social platforms or for their brand. So talk a little bit about sort of how the big guys do it, right? And how maybe you see smaller brands or smaller operations pulling it off on like a, a, a smaller scale. Sure. No, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I feel that, um, I, I mean, for me, it comes down to the idea of a narrative platform. You want to create a narrative platform for yourself or for your brand. And what that really means is it ties into the idea that who we are, our identity in the eyes of other people 
is really kind of the sum of all the stories that we tell about ourselves and about everything else. And that's true of individuals, it's certainly true of brands. And so what you need to do as a, as a, as a big brand, as a, say a company like Walt Disney, uh, is to uh, you know, understand that everything ties in to your identity. Everything that you say, everything that you do is part of who you are in the eyes of your, uh, of your customers, your users, your audience, uh, the general public. And uh, so Walt Disney himself uh, conveyed this in a brilliant fashion in a drawing that was done and that he did in 1957, a sort of schematic uh, that resurfaced about um, eight or 10 years ago. Uh, the Harvard Business Review article. And what it did was it showed how all the different parts of the Walt Disney Studio worked together. There was a theatrical division, there was television, there was music, there was books, there was comics, and, and there was, of course. Uh, and, um, and really at the center of this was the theatrical division, the motion pictures. And then radiating off from that, but all connected to one another in one way or another, were all of these, you know, sort of ancillary um, uh, divisions like television and, and, and Disneyland and music and so forth. And they all work together. And in the same way, a series of, of stories that a big brand can tell works together. Um, you know, the example, the, the main example I use in the book is The Walking Dead, which, uh, as you probably know, is, has, was at one time the most popular, you know, television show uh, uh, on any platform. Um, you know, the first time that a cable TV show overtook, uh, you know, what was on the original three broadcast networks. So, what they did with The Walking Dead was, of course, it was based on a comic series. Uh, they created the television series um, uh, based on that. And then they created all this other stuff around it. Uh, you know, they, they did webisodes. They did a spinoff TV show. They even did a TV show, um, a, a TV talk show about the show itself, which I thought was just brilliant. So after every you know, episode of The Walking Dead, there was a half hour talk show where people discussed what was going on in that episode. Uh, and, um, and then of course there were games and there were mobile games and there was stuff like Dead Yourself, which was a, a mobile app that you could use to see what you would look like if you were a zombie. And, uh, and you know, this of all these things, of course, they, they really, you know, played on our fascination with zombies and, and ultimately with death. And, uh, and, it just became a, you know, sort of a brilliant um, uh, sort of self, well, I'm not quite sure what the term is, so let's back off from that, yeah. <laughs> if you don't mind. <clears throat> um, it all became uh, a part of a brilliant series of stories that, that came together to, um, to connect uh, with the TV show, to connect people with the TV show, the more of a fan you were, the more of all the stuff you were going to be, you know, caught in the web of. But 
and and what that meant was that uh, you were going to become more and more of a uh, you know proselytizer for the for the show and you know in the case of Walking Dead there was even a uh, talk about experiential there was even a uh, you know there were things that happened in the real world that connected with the show like uh, for example you could go down to Atlanta where it was filmed and you could be uh, you know you could go to a zombie school and you could you know become a walker on the show uh, you know an extra basically and and people love to do this, even though it was, you know, hot and horrendously uncomfortable and so forth. It just, you know, people couldn't wait. So, uh, you know, there's just a, a million ways to, you know, that you can engage people in your story. And, you know, my introduction to this idea and really the thing that set me on this whole on this whole course, I suppose you could say, certainly set me on uh, writing my earlier book, The Art of Immersion, uh, um, was an interview that I did with James Cameron in 2006. I was doing a story for Wired Magazine on 3D. And of course, Cameron had invented this 3D camera system. And I, uh, at the time, it was sort of widely expected that the next movie he was going to do was Avatar. It was been in, in uh, you know, development and pre-production for years and years. And uh, so everybody thought this was going to be the next thing. So, of course, I asked him about it. And what he said was he didn't really want to talk about it very much. Right. So uh, but but he did say this. He said that for. For him, he described it as sort of an Edgar Rice Burroughs-style action-adventure film that takes place on another planet. Edgar Rice Burroughs, of course, being the author of Tarzan. Uh, and and uh, what he said beyond that was that for him, the best way to tell a story like that was to really create a sort of a fractal experience where if you were a casual fan, you could just sort of watch the movie and that would be fine. You would be satisfied. But if you were a more committed fan, you could go deeper and deeper into the into the story and the pattern would still hold. And so that's what The Walking Dead, uh, you know, did with their show. That's what AMC did with their show. Uh, they created this whole network of stories that surrounded, you know, the main uh, the, the main story, uh, the, the main TV show. And people could go deeper and deeper uh, into it. And for a story, um, for a TV show that was just on, you know, maybe 16 times a year, uh, you wanted, you need to create something. You need to create something that people will hang on to, some reason for them to, you know, like think about it after they've watched all the episodes that have just come out. So that was really his, um, uh, I'm sorry, that was really AMC's solution. And it was really, I don't know if it was intentionally or not, but it was certainly building on what James Cameron said. Mm. And this is just as important for small brands, for startups, as it is for anybody else. Uh, we can all surround ourselves, and we all do, in fact, with stories. Uh, you know, we can do it online and social media, on YouTube or Vimeo. Uh, we can um, uh, sort of create a, a, an ecosystem of stories that explains who we are and how um, 
it all fits together. And that's what I mean by narrative platform. And I, I think it's just as important, maybe even more important for a small company or a startup than for, uh, you know, for, for a big outfit. Hmm. Then let's, let's talk a little bit about, because there's a difference and you play, you definitely talk about this, but um, I feel it. I think we all do the difference between being immersed in something immersion and just engagement, right? So as marketers or as, as business owners, we're so focused on the engagement, right? How many people, how many people are engaged with social posts or watching videos, right? But <clears throat> what is the marked difference between immersion and engagement? That's a very good point. I think that engagement is, uh, it's, I mean, engagement is important, but it's easy to get misled by that. And it's easy to, you know, kind of lose your focus. Um, you know, ultimately, it doesn't matter that much. What really matters is how immersed people are in your story or your stories or your product um, and the stories around it. And Immersion is, is really a function of caring, of, you know, wanting to know more, of being a fan, uh, you know, and companies like Apple and Warby Parker uh, have fans. They don't just have customers. And with Warby Parker, it was, uh, it, you know, this was the case at the very beginning, you know, when they were just first starting out, people became fans of what they were doing because it was new and different because, uh, at the time, in particular, this was, I believe, 2010 or so, uh, you know, the idea of selling something direct to consumers was still quite new and, uh, and had only, you know, recently been made possible by, by internet connections. And so, you know, really the whole idea that of, of uh, you know, communicating who you are uh, you know, I think that's what is um, is so critical here. And the, and the layers. I mean, what stuck out to me, what you just said on the James Cameron thing was about the pattern that will still hold. I think that's really, really critical, right? Because, you know, I look at things like, I mean, and I, I fell headfirst into Walking Dead, <laughs> definitely. Um, another experience I've had, you know, Avatar evoked that, but something like the Lord of the Rings, you know, something that is this, it's, it, the world, right, that kind of pulls you in. And I think there's something really interesting about the holding of the pattern, right? That as you dig deeper, there's that consistency, right? Not that you're always doing the same thing or telling the same kind of stories, but there's, uh, and this is why I think how we related to brands, right? If the brand pillars or the brand values or whatever it is, that the stories, that the layers, that pattern is always around some core structure. Right. So people feel safer that they feel like they understand. Um, but I think that what you're speaking on, on the version of the immersion and engagement is a lot about the depth. Right. It's the depth that you go through um, in in showcasing the story or growing the story, the core story or the core narrative. So that's pretty cool. Let's talk about um, I want to talk about how storytelling can sort of fix problems in the world. So sort of shift gears a little bit, right? Um, psychologically, we know that a lot is happening inside us when we hear stories, right? And emotional connections can prompt our actions, right? It actually informs our actions. So how can we use stories to change narratives or to persuade? Um, and is there sort of an argument for or against uh, 
I can, and this maybe is a separate question, but I really want to dig into the idea of representation, right? Representation mattering in stories. Um, because my, my, from what I've gathered, obviously that changes your, can change your feelings towards a person or a group of people by having that emotional connection through story. So um, how can we fix the world's problem through stories? I guess that's the question. <laughs> well, I think really uh, uh, the key to all of this is the idea of how we understand stories, how we process stories. And there's been a lot of neuroscience and cognitive psychology work in this in the last um, 10, 15 years, um, you know, maybe as much as 20. Um, much of it in response to the sort of thing that Jerome Bruner set in motion about how we need to understand how stories work. And the general consensus, I think, is that we understand stories by imaginatively projecting ourselves into them. There are a number of experiments that show this, you know, how this happens and, and, and so forth. But all you really have to do is think about going to a horror movie uh, and, uh, you know, just like, of course, that's how it works. You know, why else would you get scared? You know, you're just sitting there in a, in a dark, you know, movie theater and nothing's, you know, probably going to happen to you. Uh, and uh, so, so, and nonetheless, we, uh, you know, we get scared out of our wits. And it really has to do with the idea that we project ourselves in, in, into stories. You know, it's, we do this, it's an imaginative process. Uh, and we, um, we sort of lose track of who and where we are. Uh, and the more immersed we are, the more that happens, right? Uh, and so, uh, it really becomes, I think, a critical issue to think about um, creating um, a, a world in which the story takes place. It's not just, you know, telling a story. It's telling a story that can be sort of open-ended, perhaps, and that certainly has room for people to imagine themselves in it. Uh, and to project themselves into it. And we find uh, there's a number of quite interesting experiments that I go into in the book and also in my Columbia program. Uh, we find that people uh, um, are more likely to project themselves into the story imaginatively um, if they can identify with the main character. And, uh, you know, so the, if the main character somehow resembles them. But we also find that, for example, if uh, we are not told something about the main character that would make uh, him or her different, like perhaps that they're gay or, you know, for a white audience that they're black. Uh, if they're not told this right away, um, we will tend to bond with the character um, uh, anyway. And then when it becomes, you know, when, when we do learn this information, it's too late. It doesn't matter to us anymore because mm -hmm. we've already formed a connection with this character. And, so I think that's a, that's a really key uh, thing to keep in mind. Um, you need to have characters who are sympathetic, um, sympathetic to your, to your main audience. You need to have characters who are sympathetic, who are sympathetic to your main audience that they can identify with. Mm. Yeah, I think that that was such an interesting uh, study that you said is in the book about people's impressions or level of empathy that they feel towards the characters with those marked difference that you mentioned, just based on where that 
fact was cited right in a book or how laid into it right is because the the audience had time to make that connection um which is really cool let's talk a little bit about uh this is more of a personal curiosity because you're you know you're at columbia you're with the gen zers and the young folk nowadays and i i'm i've gotten i've read several harvard business review articles and and getting the impression just the in the increasing importance that brands take a stand on social issues um, and sort of building the brand story around that. Do you find that that's getting more important or that's something that's going to be uh, like a part of the buying, the decision-making process for the younger generations for their purchasing decisions? Or you think that it's just kind of like, maybe seems like that way on the surface and it's not really what the reality is. No, I think it is important. And I think it forms a, a real problem for brands that are trying to be all things to all people. You know, a brand like, like Warby Parker is not going to appeal to everyone. Uh, it's, it's, you know, basically becomes a kind of a lifestyle brand. And that means it appeals to people who have a certain kind of lifestyle. And there are many, many brands like this. I mean, Starbucks is a very good example. You can still have a huge, uh, you know, audience, a huge customer base, but um, but they identify with each other and they can be identified psychographically. Uh, and this is, a, I think, a really important thing to, to keep in mind. Now, the problem, of course, with taking a stand on issues is that not all uh, the public takes the same stand on the same issues, right? I mean, this is obvious. Uh, and so for, for a truly mass brand, uh, you know, it becomes a lot easier to kind of, you know, duck the question if, if at all possible. But I think that that leads to a kind of cynicism that uh, is going to be obvious to people and going to be obvious to your audience. So I don't think ultimately, uh, you know, any brand is going to be able to, uh, you know, duck important questions. Uh, and again, this is something that comes up with the coronavirus. You know, it's been politicized in the U.S. and in other countries as well um, to a sort of ridiculous extent. Um, but, you know, you see companies like, uh, you know, American Airlines or, or United uh, taking a real stand on this, we, you know, we believe in customer safety and employee safety, and, you know, we're not going to, uh, you know, let you on, uh, and certainly not going to let our employees on if they're not vaccinated, um, because uh, this is, you know, all of the stories to the contrary, notwithstanding, science shows that this is uh, what will prevent the uh, disease from spreading. Mm, yeah. So let's, uh, I've got one, one more critical question for you um, to wrap up, but it's talking a little bit about what do the future holds for stories and brands? Yeah, well, that is a, um, a, a huge question. And I don't think anybody knows, including myself, because the reason for that is because the technology is, you know, it's not like, uh, oh, suddenly we went digital and everything changed. It's, it's still rocketing ahead. And we don't, you know, we don't really know where uh, exactly it's going. A few years ago, it looked as if virtual reality would be, you know, a huge part of storytelling. 
Um, and, you know, now not so much. I think that, you know, there's still perhaps a, um, a role for it, but uh, there are a number of things that have to be, number of problems that have to be addressed with virtual reality before it will become that important to us, uh, in, certainly as a storytelling medium. Um, I, think, I think there are certain things that are, uh, you know, certainly coming to the fore. One of them is the idea that we don't, uh, often we don't just want to be told the story. We want to experience the story, which means that we have to have some form of, of, of uh, you know, control over it ourselves as the audience. Uh, you know, another key thing that's come out of uh, psychology and neuroscience research in recent years is that we, uh, you know, we, we don't just uh, consume a story, whether it's um, uh, something we read or a TV show or a movie or whatever, we co-create it in our minds. We co-create it in partnership, you know, ultimately with the author. And, and what that means is that uh, you know, again, it's a, the whole idea of projecting yourself into the story. We interpret the story in, in light of, and in, unconsciously, but in light of our own experiences and our predilections and our, uh, you know, our, our sense of the world, our understanding of the world. And so this sense of co-creation becomes key. And, uh, um, you know, co-creation becomes important when we're in a story that, you know, there are certain stories and uh, certain media, and VR is certainly one of them, uh, in which, you know, it's easy to kind of shade over from stories to games and vice versa. In games, as I, you know, discussed in The Art of Immersion, my earlier book, games are really about, uh, you know, we watch something happening or we experience it ourselves, and we come away from it uh, with our own story to tell. It's, this is the case if you watch a baseball game, uh, you know, it's the case of, of uh, you know, watching uh, uh, people play video games online. You know, Twitch has become huge because of, of this whole thing. And, uh, you know, just the, the idea that, um, uh, you know, that, that we become the storyteller uh, itself is, I think, revolutionizing stories in a way that we're only beginning to understand. At the same time, that's not the only way we want to experience stories. We want to experience other types of stories. And, you know, a, 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 a show like Game of Thrones, for example, is a perfect, uh, a, a television show like Game of Thrones is a perfect example of this. Uh, you know, we want to we want to know where uh, the story is going. We want to have a sense, certainly, that the storyteller knows where it's going, and that is that becomes a, uh, a like a, a, a the real basis for our understanding and our participation and our immersion in the story. Mm. And so, if we wanted to give some advice on brands on how to kind of stay ahead of the curve or leverage kind of new trends that may be coming around the bend. What advice might you give to founders? I think it really comes down to a combination of a story that you control, that you know how to tell, that you know where it's going, 
and a story that invites people to have their own input into it. I think, again, I would go back to The Walking Dead, the example of, an, of a mobile app like, like Dead Yourself, uh, you know, is perfect. Uh, you know, we, we all would like to imagine ourselves in a story that we love or that we care about or that affects us emotionally in some way. And, uh, you know, and so to be able to do that is, uh, is, is really key. Um, the, you know, another thing that comes to mind, um, this is not in the book, but it's something that I've been thinking about in, uh, lately, and it certainly could be in the book. Um, there's a brand of gin called the Botanist, right? And um, it is made on the Isle of Islay uh, in the um, Hebrides in Scotland, an incredibly remote uh, part of the world. And uh, and it's the reason it's called the botanist is that uh, they decided it, it was, let me back up just a moment. It was uh, created by this uh, uh, whiskey distillery, of course, you know, a Scottish single malt. Um, they wanted to have another product that they could, uh, you know, that they wouldn't have to age for 10 years like you do with, uh, with single malt. And, uh, and so they came up with this idea of a gin and they found that there were two retired botanists living on this incredibly remote island and that uh, they engaged them, the botanists, to um, uh, forage for uh, these botanicals that were unique to the island. And, you know, those went into the making of the gin. So, and then they called the gin, of course, the botanist. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, it's a it's a quite unique gin, uh, and I've seen it everywhere from you know literally uh, you know uh, liquor stores in Manhattan to a bar in Hanoi, mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, it, it which suggests that it really translates right, and uh, and so using a, a you know using a story in that way I think is. Uh, is is really key and when you go to their website you see all kinds of stuff you see videos you see stories about the people who who actually make it um you know all of that and of course the, about the botanists themselves uh and um uh, so it's a it's just another way of giving an identity to uh giving an identity to a brand um, yeah, you, know, I love that. you kind of sparked me to think about Kind of the idea of like yes there's the brand story right that you want to have that narrative around but there's also the story in the head of the consumer of who they want to be right and there's right. it's a beautiful thing when those two stories really play into each other right like the person that drinks this botanist gin you know the kind of person they aspire to be is someone that you know has visited this small remote island perhaps or has experience picking these herbs and flowers that they use in, into the gin. So I think that is quite cool. Um, all right, one last question though, I think is a good place to leave off um, in closing the discussion about the book. So the sea we swim in, could you just tell us a little bit about why that title? Yes, so the, the title of the sea we swim in really came about because 
Early on, uh, you know, I was, as I said, um, uh, quite taken with Jerome Bruner and with his uh, um, writings about stories. Um, oddly enough, uh, although uh, Bruner advocated for studying stories and understanding them and how they work and so forth, uh, and for their importance uh, to our lives, I'm not sure that he ever actually told the story himself, uh, at least not in his writings. Even his autobiography is about, uh, you know, um, uh, all the ideas that he had and championed. So in any case, that's just a, a minor irony. But, um, but the, uh, you know, one thing that he said that really struck me was, uh, I, sh I should say, one thing that he wrote that really struck me was, uh, a, a short passage, which is um, at the very front of the book, an epigraph, um, in which he says, "You know, we we are, uh, you know, like like the you know the fish who never understands." Who, uh, I'm getting bollocks up in this. Sorry. Um, a, a short quote in which he says, uh, "You know, basically, like the fish who." never recognizes water for what it is, we swim in a sea of stories uh, yeah. and without really realizing it, without understanding it. And then I came across a, uh, a, a talk that um, David Foster Wallace gave on the occasion of a, a college commencement in, I believe it was 2005, in which he told this, uh, he started off by telling this little joke. And the joke was, um, with my apologies to uh, Mr. Wallace, um, the, the joke was essentially that these two young fish swimming along and an older fish comes the other way and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two younger fish uh, swim along for a moment and then one of them turns to the other and says, what the hell is water? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's such a, it's a beautiful place to wrap up because I think, you know, whether they're brand stories or the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves or how we view our lives and our work and everything that we do, it's all about the narrative that we create for ourselves. So that is just, this is such an awesome conversation. Thank you so much. The book, I adore the book. Everyone needs to go get the book. But please tell us, where can everyone find you? Where do you like to hang out online? Um, and maybe talk a little bit about this strategic storytelling seminar, because I know that that's available to anyone, right? Not just Columbia students. Yes, right. It's actually an executive education seminar. So it's, it's designed for people, in fact, who are not Columbia students. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, you can find out information about that and about uh, more information about the book and everything else uh, that I'm involved with at frankrose.com. You can also find me on Twitter um, at Frank Rose. And the, uh, the, the Columbia program is uh, it's, it's co-sponsored by the um, School of the Arts, Columbia University School of the Arts, which is a graduate school of, of basically theater and dance and uh, film and so forth, uh, and, uh, and Columbia Business School Executive Education. So um, uh, there's links on frankrose.com to, um, to inf you know, information on the Columbia site about the program, 
we run it, we're currently running it virtually uh, three times a year. Um, before the coronavirus pandemic, we were running it uh, um, in person um, twice a year in New York. Um, my suspicion is that uh, as coronavirus inevitably fades eventually, um, we'll continue to do uh, the uh, uh, live online version and we'll uh, go back to doing it in person as well. There are certainly advantages to each one. Uh, so, but the, the program is really um, uh, in its live version, uh, I'm sorry, in its in-person version, the program is uh, a, a two-day intensive about, uh, you know, really what stories are, how they work, how you can make them work for you. And, uh, you know, we have people from all kinds of, of different um, outfits from, uh, you know, major consultancies like McKinsey and uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers to big corporations like Google and Salesforce, uh, AB InBev, the, uh, um, the, 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 the uh, beverage uh, company, and um, uh, to, you know, people from nonprofits like the American Red Cross or the International Red Cross. Uh, we have uh, people from all over the world um, and we have entrepreneurs. One of my favorites was uh, uh, there was a young woman from Madrid who she and, his, she and her brother had started a chain of uh, Japanese hamburger stands in Madrid. Yeah. Uh, so I just thought that was brilliant. It was a story in itself. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, so, you know, I love, I mean, it's a huge inspiration for me to, you know, work with people like this, to talk with them and get their, you know, get a sense of what they want and need and, and what their own stories are. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. Everyone go get the book, The Seawees Women. And it was such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Victoria. It was great. I really appreciate it. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to the Marketing for Startups podcast and for sticking around till the end. It would mean so much to me if you could like and subscribe to this podcast. It's a great way of telling the world that this podcast has content worth listening to. And remember, you could always reach me at LinkedIn at Victoria Hajar or at UglyVentures.com. Thanks for listening. Until next week.